Hello and welcome to the Show Up Podcast, a place where we explore this thing called leadership, how we make sense of it, and a space where you can do the same. A chance to reflect on how you show up and how you can be the best leader possible in the world in which you work today. Gents, coming towards the end of our summer, how are you both? Doing all right, thank you, Jamie. All right, a little bit of jet lag, not going to lie, but we're all right, we're good. Well, you're both looking fairly healthy, looking like you've had a bit of, you know, that holiday glow. I know that you've just come back from the other side of the world, Graham, and Derry, you've been away. I've seen some of your Insta feed, so um, it's great to have you both back. Um, today, we're going to talk about different types of leadership. Now, with your various different experiences of different parts of the world, I wonder whether that's fairly topical, given that we were just looking before this started at different geographical leadership styles or types and really quite radically different images or shapes in that description. And, and Graham, maybe you can tell us a little bit about where we saw that from. And it reminded me of a couple of conversations I've had in the last uh, 24 hours, one with a mentee of mine who's taking on a leadership role for the first time who said, so how do I become a leader? What type of leader should I be? And I thought to myself, I'm not really sure how to answer that question just yet. Because there are so many different types of leadership. I need to understand a little bit more about him. So that was one thing. So I just kind of thought, interesting how people assume that they've got to choose a type. The second one was um, talking to somebody from uh, the military this morning, ex-military, in fact, ex-army, British army. And he was talking about how it's such a difficult thing to define what leadership is. You know, he said even the the UK's armed forces, three different strands of that, the army, the air force, the navy, they don't agree on what good leadership or a leadership characteristic or type is because they have different characteristics in their manuals. So what do we think about this, chaps? What are those different leadership types and how do you choose? What's the difference? I'm really fascinated to explore this one. Graham, what do you think? Yeah. Um, what do I think? A bit of holiday rust coming in here, so just bear with it a minute while the you know it comes <laughs> off. That's the reason. The rust is actually the colour of my tan. That's why. That's why the tan's so brown. Yeah, I, I'd say um, it's a fascinating thing. I've always been curious about. Like I look back at people who've been noted for their leadership capability you go on a sports hanger you look at someone like Bobby Robson you know good player great coach same with Jose Mourinho average player listed as a fantastic coach and then I look back through my own experiences of being led and how there was different leaders and different styles and how did that and I've always been kind of curious about what's got them to that style that they choose to approach leadership with. So it really is quite a fascinating subject. I'm quite excited to talk about it with you boys today, actually, because I don't think we'll answer the question, but we'll have a good chat about it, as always. <laughs> I mean, that's the MO, right? Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I agree for me. I, we've touched on this in a few different episodes, I think, where we've talked about, yeah, well, I, I think it's probably fair to say that we all naturally default to a conscious style of leadership that's collaborative and supportive and uh, less of a Alex Ferguson hairdryer type approach. But we have talked in the past about how there are many other styles of leadership out there, which objectively seem to be effective depending on the 
objectives of that organization. You know, Elon Musk is the kind of classic example at the moment of how he has just steamrolled through a bunch of change at Twitter that has upset an awful lot of people. And he's doing that because he believes that to be effective. Jeff Bezos at Amazon in a similar way. So I think it's fascinating because we've touched on these things. We haven't actually had a dive into the the what and the why and the how of these different types of leadership. How do, do do either of you have a, a framework in mind for how you might define different types of leadership? What are we even talking about when we talk about a type of leadership? Well, um, if I may, and I'll say, although I spend a lot of time around leaders and to think about the leadership um, as a concept, I've never really studied types. I can I can name a couple of the you know traditional, very familiar sort of decentralized leadership type or the command and control leadership type but i'm sure there's a lot more and that chart that graham you showed us just a moment ago talking about the geographical variations was really quite interesting because there's so many different types that i hadn't really ever thought about yeah i i think um it's really interesting because as you pose that question because of the work i've done in behavior i look at leader behavior through a very similar lens that there's a strength that each type you know you could put it on a carl jung originated behavioral matrix mbti insights any one of those things right and you could start to see there's times where let's just use um some of the uh insights language you know an analytical type leader is going to achieve results in a certain way over a driven style leader an effervescent leader is going to sit there and achieve things in different ways to someone who's, you know, quite um, amiable and empathetic. And 30, 40 years ago, one type was seen as being the route to success. You know, everyone says red leader. You know, it's a narrative I've heard more times than I can remember. Um, but I also find that what's that now evolving into is an understanding that each style has a real opportunity to leverage the group around it and lead that group around it. And it, it often comes down to understanding the characteristics of that leaders can show and then looking at how their preference starts to demonstrate those. So someone who is quite driven is going to push through changes or initiatives or things that they want. Someone who's quite amiable might be better at actually including their whole team in the decision and empowering the team to make that choice there. Both, both options are going to work. So for me, it's a little bit difficult to sort of say which is the style that's the best or which is a more dominant style. What are your thoughts, Derry? Well, hearing you talk then, Graham, I'm thinking about actually trying to reserve judgment on what's good or bad on any of these different styles and actually what are the different dimensions within which we can think about leadership. So you've got, for example, you just referenced analytical leadership the other end of that scale you might say there's intuitive mm -hmm. leadership and people that shoot from their gut make quick decisions based on their natural instincts whereas now, i would certainly would lend naturally fall more in the analytical camp as an ex-strategy consultant that's probably fairly common for people that have been through that journey of well before i make decisions i want to understand the data and do the analysis and actually if someone's leading me I don't react very well to just an intuitive gut instinct that can't be supported. Hmm. So you've got that analytical to intuitive uh, 
dimension. I wonder what other dimensions are that we think about. I guess the empathetic spectrum. So really empathetic leadership style through to, I can't even think of what the, the way you describe the opposite end of that. Didactic probably strings to my mind as a word that could be the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the big five personality traits language. You talk about agreeableness for that. Of yeah. the very very low levels of agreeableness is just well, I don't really care what you think of me. We're going to do the right thing. Through to high high levels of agreeableness. What, what about what about some of the other labels that we hear on leadership types or styles like servant leadership? Um, that is a much more recent, um, yeah. I'd, I'd say, phenomenon, but more of a I'd call it as a something that I've heard more and more from both clients and in stuff I've read. This is another way of describing the type of leadership. Um, does that just really refer to different levels of some of the characteristics that we've just said or talked about? Or is it something, is it just a completely different lens on it? I think it's a more encapsulate, it's a, it's a kind of broad encapsulation of a number of different leadership traits, I would say, that lead you to identify as a servant leader and behave as a servant leader it has some resonance with there's a there's a training course that we run on situational leadership for consultants which is and the core of that really is that you can think about leadership as a in a directive style and may and this context leadership may be more accurately described as management for what i'm talking about but the directive style of kind of being very prescriptive about what must be done and how it should be done through to the other end of the spectrum, a more supportive style of, well, I'm here to help you achieve what you're trying to achieve. And that supportive end of the spectrum would be part of that servant leadership mindset of delegating ownership to the team and then the team seeking support from you where they need it and you're there to serve them and the mm-hmm. broader organisation. And that within that supportive to directive spectrum there are different subgrades of leadership styles as well and the the whole idea of that situational leadership is to adapt your leadership style to the level of confidence or competence of the individual that you're leading so again that, i think that's another dimension of directive supportive analytical intuitive that we can think about in terms of the different types of leadership yeah. so what i'm hearing then is leadership styles are numerous. Some of them are very specific. Some of them are characteristics. Some of them are more broad sort of banners within which you can group a number of other types or categorizations of characteristics. Um, so that's one thing that exists in the landscape. And the other side of things, Graham, from your both um, academic and practical experience, your you're seeing a shift away from there being one taught leadership style, which is the way to lead 40, 50 years ago, to there being now a recognition that any number of these different either styles or types could lead to the achievement of the kind of outcomes that leaders would want, just so we get there in a different way. So it doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other, and the proliferation of them means that there's a huge amount of choice. I guess the question that that proposes for me is, What's the process if we're thinking of our emerging leaders, 25 to 40, going into that leadership paradigm for the first time? What's the process for them? Do they look at a style and go, that one suits me? Or do they just get on with leading and then they, in parallel, 
say which one am I most like and which what do I need to watch out for as a result of me being more like this one because there might be strengths or things that I could be overusing or underutilizing that um, and maybe just a little bit of reference to the the material around this style would be helpful yeah, I think for me the it starts with them the individual and them understanding their characteristics their types their patterns the things that they do each day in role whether that's a leadership role or not at that point that they do that because that then gives like a baseline of understanding you've got some data points there that says right i index you know dare you talking about the big five styles right um it gives something to an index whether you tune up or tune down that style in practice because then you can start to not just look at yourself and see what you play with, but then it's about that in relationship to what you're leading. That's important. Because there's evidence that says complementary styles will lead well together. There's also evidence that suggests conflicting styles that will lead well together. So I think it's having that, having that look from a leadership lens and a characteristic lens first and then say, well, where is that me in practice and what can I do with that and start to experiment around? Cause it then becomes a case of delivery for me. Derry. I think that we all have a natural style that we lean towards on all of these different dimensions. Right? I, I reference my preference for analytical on the other spectrum. I'm, I'd lean almost towards a entirely hands-off leader. Um, and I certainly don't have a natural tendency towards micromanagement, but, um, what I think is really important actually, as part of this, and particularly people stepping into this golden age of leadership is to understand that your, that leadership style is not fixed and that over time leadership is a skill that you can develop and you can develop multiple different ways of leading. And ultimately, what what you want to end up to is, I think, a, a toolbox of different styles that you can deploy in different situations mm. as as appropriate, based on what you're trying to achieve, the dynamics of your team, the time scale that you've got, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't, I to your point earlier, Graham, I don't think there is a good or bad way of leading. Although we'll probably get into the fact that there are some generally observed better ways of doing this that are more universally true yeah sorry i shouldn't say there aren't good or bad ways of leading there clearly are bad ways of leading and better ways of leading within that spectrum of better ways of leading there are multiple different styles and types that can be deployed and i think what people should be seeking to do is firstly understand their natural leadership style the natural sets of behaviors because really what we're talking about here is behaviours. And even when I talk about skills, skills are just the deployment of behaviours and techniques in various levels of competence. Mm. And people have this, these sets of behaviours that they will naturally go to. And, I, you know, we it always seems to come back to self-awareness, right? Like the starting point is self-awareness. Like well, what, what natural type of leader am I and why do I show up like that in – these, the environment that I find myself in. And that is the starting point for saying, well, that's my natural state. What other options do I have? And if I were to try a different style, how might that emerge in 
the environment that I'm in right now. And what then that allows you to do, you know, I'm struck by our conversation with Ian Haller a few weeks ago, where he talked about his kind of team that he assembles and he's understood that his natural style means that in his team, he needs an analytical person and he needs an empath who is going to deal with the softer side of the team in a way that he won't naturally do it. And he's figured that out um, as part of his journey into self-awareness. And that's just one example, right? So I think aiming to get to an understanding of your natural style and then what the options are to change that and apply different styles and ultimately to develop a level of mastery and deploying those different styles is a huge part of this leadership journey, I think. That's interesting. I'm hearing what I would, if I play it back, something that resonates with me in terms of um, leadership can evolve, skills can expand, but ultimately what great leaders, I think, start to develop is an ability to have range, a range that they can access on the basis of responding to the context or the situation they're in, the people they're around, the purpose they're trying to serve, and, and they and they recognize that one size does not fit all. Either the people that they, they are leading, the team that they're part of, the purpose they're trying to serve, the context they're in. And the ability to access that range comes from knowing where you are and, and really, really understanding um, what your tendencies are, what your sense-making's like, um, and indeed what you're drawn to or pushed away from uh, and what you might then become sort of caught up in the grip of given a certain set of those different characteristics so that that idea of range it seems to be really important as well so these these types and styles are all there for people to start to build out a portfolio of some of them could be quite technical some of them could be quite soft but all of them actually have have a, have a purpose they could serve and for example if you start out as, as somebody who works really well in a technical environment but then you have to start to manage te- uh, teams of people one of the things that you might definitely need to sort of index up or focus on working really hard on is learning how to listen and learning how to listen in a way that means that you learn as well as allowing other people the space to speak up and speak out, which may not have been relevant in the past. And then, you know, all of these things become um, not necessarily always teachable, but um, developable, practical or practi- practicable um elements of uh, who you become as a leader that makes and sense I actually yeah and it's interesting because you like you have that environment where it may be very necessary to become a very high highly capable leader um actually i was uh, sorry a highly capable listener and uh, i saw something the other day about um sachin adela the ceo of microsoft um and how his primary thing that he has developed over his time is listening. And the story that was being told was someone relatively junior in the organization who joined and Satcher asked for a half hour call with this new person and their manager. And through the half hour, spent the entire time asking questions and listening. So this is the CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world talking to someone relatively junior. Mm-hmm. And all they're doing is asking what does it mean to you to work here? What challenges do you see? Why did you join, etc.? Without trying to you know, pitch or sell or like bring any ego into that conversation. So that I, there's those environments where listening could be really important. I can also think of environments where lead, good leadership means being extremely 
precise and clear in the direction that you're giving people. So say you manage a relatively large team of offshore workers who need to get stuff done very reliably and clearly, then that crisp and clear communication is what is going to give them a sense of safety and confidence and clarity in what they're trying to do. And being able to articulate that very clearly is a important facet of leadership in that environment where listening is still important, but you've also got to be really good at the communication and the structuring and the clarity. Yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking when do those things, when, how often are those things both real and true? Absolutely. What happens when circumstances change really rapidly? What happens to the leaders who've developed a particular practice, even if they haven't necessarily developed their full range yet? How do they then cope with that? And I'm thinking of a very recent example that we've all been part of, which was in the UK, it was I think March the 20th or 23rd of 2020, when Boris Johnson stood up on screen and said, yeah. right, we're going to go to lockdown tonight, get home by 6pm or whatever it was. And schools were shut and everything else. And then suddenly we, we suddenly were like, we can't go to work. Oh, crikey, what goes on now? The leaders in organizations in that moment, while they wanted to be clear and precise, they knew just as much as we did that there was nothing that was certain. There was an unpredictable nature of all this sort of stuff. We didn't know how infectious things were. We didn't know how to then adapt our operations, but we had to keep things moving. That's managing in vast complexity or even chaos, if you think mm. of the Kinevin framework. So what do you draw upon in that situation? And how quickly do you need to let go of something that you've been potentially very good at? An oil rig leader in that environment has got to go, okay, my tendency is to be clear and precise, but I can't be. So I've got no rules for this. So how do I adapt? Yeah, and that's and that... where... Sorry, go on, Derry. No, you go, you go. I was going to say, that's for me, that's where that ability to be self-aware is really critical. In the absence of having... Well, I've always argued that getting your first leadership position is probably the most difficult career move in working world because you move from being someone who just delivers outcomes all the time to leading people to deliver outcomes. And it takes a lot for a business to trust someone to do that as a formal line manager of someone. And then usually there's a poor level of investment in the person's leadership skill development. But that then leaves the leader themselves trying to work out what to do. So in the absence of them having any experience, they go on their own experiences of either being led well and they'll mirror the person who's led them well or led poorly and they'll do something different because they don't want the outcome that they felt from being led poorly in the past. And I, I feel that that becomes, that's probably where some of the root cause of the problem is because you've got basically someone with either a, you know, a blunt instrument trying to do something that really becomes a very precise but incredibly impactful piece of equipment in the leadership, in, you know, in the working world toolbox of capabilities. If you've got good leaders, the likelihood is your results are going to be achieved better. If they could do it without failing so often, sometimes it helps, but sometimes the failure is the key lesson they have to learn, lead people towards. So, and Graham, I think 
I think what you're saying there, if I understand correctly, is there's a tendency for a lot of leaders to be somewhat binary in they either do what they've experienced and enjoyed before or they do the opposite. Yeah. And that doesn't lead itself to the nuance and subtlety that is required in a lot of situations. Um, Reminds me of a lot of parents, actually. A lot of parents parent either the way they were brought up or the opposite. Mm. Um, Well, I guess being a parent is being a leader in many ways. Mm. Um, And I think that self-awareness of where has your default leadership style come from is another part of this puzzle. Mm. Like, am I just mimicking things that I've found useful before? Am I doing the opposite? And why am I doing those things? Yeah, What's I the noticed... thing I found useful before useful in the same set, similar context to what the context I'm in? I know, you know, as we're talking about this, I remember a story of one of the leaders I worked for. I'd qualify him as the, here's someone I wouldn't want to follow his leadership style. I'm quite an open and transparent leader, right? I keep people in the loop on as much as I possibly can, but I'm also quite happy to draw a clear boundary when something can't be shared but acknowledge that publicly. I know that, but it's not at a stage I can share it. I will do, you know, and share my intent to share next time. But this chap was, he was notorious for keeping secrets. And he'd keep all the toys that he wanted to keep in his play box and not let anyone else play with any toys because he was still bound to, as it, as it, as it turned out, he was still bound to wanting to prove his worth to the level above him. And he felt that his delivery of things was the only marker of success for that. Now that had a detriment on everyone else. So I'm glad I learned that lesson, but it was horrible at the time. It sucked. Because you were, there was low levels of perceived value in the team from everyone. The whole team felt like this. Low levels of motivation to get the work done. All those kind of things because of choices the leader had made. Did he have a self-awareness to it? No. Was he successful in appearing valuable to no. his managers? He was, averagely, he was averagely rated. He wasn't getting promotions. He didn't move to the senior roles that he was aspiring to get to for another five years, actually, after he did that role. So somewhere along the way, he might have had to learn a hard lesson. Now, my guess is that a story that was unfolding in his head and around him uh, was constantly adapting to fit the narrative of, well, this is, you know, my version of what a great leader is, is one that makes themselves look good up here, achieves great stuff. But actually, now I can blame something else that, I was overlooked for promotion because of people being unfair or whatever it might be, not realizing they were creating the, their own problem. So that self-awareness thing comes back into it again. How honest are you with yourself about the style you have? Do you actively go and seek feedback on what style do I have and what impact does it have on the people around me, you and others, so I can learn to adapt it? Again, so adapting and, and, and adapting and finding range or a portfolio of approaches or styles that could fit the, the context whilst still recognizing what your natural tendency is, mm. where you default to either under pressure or you've, you'd like to go for comfort or enjoyment or it, when you're really in the grip of some excitement, which your natural style Just be aware of when you're overusing it and stuff like that. It's really, it's really fascinating. 
And I think to to like part of your story there, Graham, was that that leadership style wasn't necessarily effective for the team or for his his aspirations, and that that is how you learn, right? Like you try stuff and it's not working. And I, I don't think what we're not saying is that leaders need to go out and like deliberately change what they're doing unless they're doing that with a view to learning. A, a lot of your learning is going to come from realizing that the way you're leading someone just isn't working Mm. isn't working for them or for you or for the objectives of your team or the organization whatever it is but being aware of that and and understanding that you have the option to to change it the other lens i think um so we've talked a bit about where default leadership styles come from some of it is inherent to you and your uh, behaviors in the world some of it is based on what you've learned Graham, before we came on air, you were showing us that page of different leadership styles from different countries. And there's this strong lens of the default leadership style that is culturally normal in what and, that, and this this uh page that um Graham's got shows these leadership styles by country, but actually it's probably more about the uh community or tribe of people that you feel a connection to that yeah. you've grown up in that influences your leadership style to a, to a degree as well but so you've got the kind of societal level stuff you've got the work experience stuff and you've got the life experience stuff that's all contributing i wonder are there any of these leadership styles that jump out as surprising to you guys as you as you look at this page maybe we can describe them for people listening yeah, well, it's, it's an excerpt from a book, When Cultures Collide, by Richard D. Lewis. And it was one of them things, you know, micro-learning moment up on uh, Instagram that I had. And it just struck me that there is such a variety, like you say, of these these different culturally-based systems of how leadership shows up. You know, it says for France, for example, very autocratic. There's one leader that makes a big impact and that gets fed down the food chain. Um, Latin and Arab states, it characterizes as very nepotistic. And having engaged with those kind of those kind of cultures, you can see that it is very much a tr- there is a high degree in trust required for leaders to let others to lead something or take control of something. So they keep that trust within the family. Um, we had a great chat before we came on here about the Netherlands model the Dutch model, because we're all trying to understand this gut diagram that has an increasing set of leadership that then loops around and plateaus on a flat line amongst everyone else. Um, so I, I find, I think your point there, Derry, is really, really critical with this types of leadership that cultural heritage plays such a big factor in these elements. You know, my... You know, my wife's currently doing a role in in the Far East, and she's noticed instantly. Even though she's you know a, you know she's Chinese of her, of heritage, she's noted instantly the difference in working styles between the UK style and the the Hong Kong style working instantly. And so she's got to adapt to. Well, she's actually making the choices. She's operating with them. Anyone thinks she's had a conversation with some sort of behavioural change consultant? But she, she, she's having the choices to make. Is that something she's going to invite a different lens on and give good reason for that lens? Or is that something that she's going to work along with 
in order to get the best out of her team. Because is it a pull towards or a bring towards moment or is it a push away from? And those all those opportunities are right in front of her, depending on how she takes it on because of the cultural heritage in leadership too. And that's true moving to a different country, also true moving to a different organization or even mm. a different team within an organization. I've had a number of friends who've worked at Amazon over the years and they some of the Amazon teams have a very different culture from other other parts of Amazon. And even if you're moving internally from one team to another, and this is true of most big organizations, there, there are pockets of different cultures and behavior styles. And every time you go into that new environment, you have to make a choice of, are you doing it my way? Are you doing it their way? Is there some blend? Uh, what what bits of your natural leadership style or the style that's worked for you in the past are going to work there and which bits are not? Yeah. Some won't, right? Yeah. I'm sure we've all done it where we've gone in there with what we think is right in a moment and we've suddenly realised that we're going to get laughed out the door or achieve nothing because it just doesn't resonate with the group around us. Uh, Graham, that's just you. That's not... <laughs> <laughs> I see that. I, knew going, I knew there's something going wrong somewhere. Um, and what, that, you know what? You just sparked the question that I was going to ask earlier, but it, it feels more relevant now. Um, so, we've got cultural heritage plays an important part in maybe the starting point of people coming from a particular educational societal background, and actually then becomes maybe an overriding factor to consider when maybe moving between either businesses in different geographies or. Uh, moving home or whatever it might be. Now, just thinking earlier on, um, almost spinning it a slightly different way, are, are some leadership styles the natural things that people were self-aware of them that could kind of just be described? Are they Do they tend to work better in certain situations or perhaps be, tend to be attracted to different types of environment? So and what I'm thinking about with this, as an example, this was triggered by the conversation I had with the, the guy from the army this morning his belief was that in the profession that he spends most of his time consulting to or, or advising they very very rarely choose leaders at all they choose extremely good technicians and revenue generators but they are hopeless at leading and that the ones who shine through are the ones who've always been drawn almost by birth into leadership so and his 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 answer was these are leaders who've selected into leadership before the age of 18 in some way shape or form and they can't help it so their style of leadership is almost to take over because they want to save and lead and be passionate about purpose and they want to create something and i don't know how you necessarily describe that leadership style but he said but those leaders that's the style of leader that this profession seems to attract. It doesn't attract other consensus leaders. It doesn't attract, um, you know, servant, certainly doesn't attract servant leadership. And I thought, ah, I wonder if they're, therefore, are there certain styles that are attracted to a certain type of environment or are there kind of archetypes where you go, as it were, in the army, you need to have this kind of leadership? What do you think of that? You say you do a pro course on situational leadership, Barry. Yeah, I was just, I, I was just wondering. <laughs> it sounds very much like he's advising consulting firms or professional services people in somewhere where that 
because I see that all the time in consulting firms, right? So you get people who are the who are essentially technically good at the job, good at working with clients and therefore revenue generating, and they rise to the, the top of the firm, but their actual ability to lead a firm is well, it's never it's never actively developed, let's put it that way. So you are you end up with the default style. Um I think it's certainly true that a leader's default style will be more effective in some organizations than others. And therefore you'd expect that those organizations, the people that stay in those organizations would be people that have that default style. And then that becomes the style that works in that organization. So it's a self reinforcing loop, right? Um, Which is to the point where we were talking about earlier. I think it's difficult to, it's difficult to come into a new organization with a radically different leadership style and be successful. It's not impossible because particularly if the incumbent leadership style is disliked for some reason by various people. Um, But generally speaking, organizations are going to have that default style. I think, is that your question, Jamie? I don't, I don't feel it, like yes, it, well, it, it, kind, it kind of is. It kind of is. It could be that, one of the consequences of there being something that some leadership styles do actually work better in some environments is they become institutionalized. That becomes mm. the default style. And in fact, some industries almost represent a kind of, as you, you're absolutely right, it's professional services and legal. It's the, right. the, the profession or this, the, the sector this guy this morning I was chatting to consults to. And it was, it was, it, 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 it was somehow he felt it attracted people who the natural style of leadership in that environment was one which was it didn't matter where they were going to be they were just going to take charge they just wanted to be and they overrode the the um the, the absence of a leadership culture and no leadership development to speak of at all to want to try and help to move things forward and take over things like that so yes you you are answering the question there um and um i just wonder i wonder whether in that kind of environment how do you how do we tackle that kind of change? And I'm thinking, Graham, there's a client that you and I have worked on that had a very institutionalized leadership style culture until it decided that it wasn't working mm. and decided that it needed to change it. And it created a and we won't say the name because of confidentiality, but it, it changed its leadership culture to be something much more akin to servant leadership. Mm quite radically different to the style that had been institutionalized for maybe more than two decades before that. But the performance of the business was dropping down below expectations and below its peer peer group and all the rest. So they said, we're going to transform from within. That was a really tough challenge. And they directly tried to transform by addressing leadership style, amongst other things, mindset as well, as a way of levering themselves into a different direction now whether they are truly successful in doing that or have been that's still i think the jury's out but that's that's one of the big fascinating challenges i know we're not necessarily talking here about a specific challenge for an emerging leader but being aware of that being actually now part of the paradigm of management focus and uh, commercial priority tackling transformation through leadership style change it's quite interesting that that's starting to surface as well. I think. Yeah. So how do you how do you adapt 
the incumbents or the institutionalized leadership style across a whole organization. Uh, uh, we've talked a bit about adapting your own leadership style and trying different things out and learning from that and developing that toolkit. But how do you actually drive that across the whole organization? So in that in that case study that you reference, where did the like, the mandate for the change, the the move to a more servant leadership style, where did that mandate come from? Mandate came from actually the CEO lobbying the board in response to their belief that they needed to transform their performance by saying the only way we're going to do this is if we transform ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to basically, in, in a rather simplistic way, just get better at doing the same stuff as we were doing anyway. That's, there's no innovation in there at all. There's no ability to transform from doing that. He said, and I think part of it was triggered because he'd been on his own um, leadership mindset shift type development journey and he saw the difference it was making for him and he successfully lobbied that the board gave them the mandate to say right go ahead do it and he said it's going to take about three to five, three to five to, years was he new to the organization or had he no, no so he'd, he'd been in the business for a while so he had he had essentially developed a new level of self-awareness and adapted tested his own leadership style and realized that he, there was a more effective way of learning. And then he made the bold decision to say, we're going to invest in this in a major way to drive change right down through the organization to, to change the institutionalized leadership culture that is in place. I think he went one step further. He said, on a, as a condition of me being the CEO, because he was anointed as CEO, he said, as a condition of me being the CEO, this is what is uh, non-negotiable for me. This is how I will lead your transformation. If you don't want to do this, go find yourself another CEO. Um, right. But, but right, and you just touched on that self-awareness thing. So he had that self-awareness experience itself. Graham was one of the um, instrumental development experts working with a number of different management teams in that business for a number of years. And I think that, that Graham, you can speak a little bit about it. But at the core of so much of the focus uh, interestingly, given what we've just been talking about, was a focus on growing self-awareness. Right. Yeah, and to the say, rest, the rest of yeah, and I will say that was what they decided as an organisation were one of the, for their cultural choices, not me. But what I'd seen through them exploring what that might mean was a real ability for leaders to become more situationally aware and lead better in those moments. And previously, the organisation had been quite didactic in how results were achieved. It's, 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 it's mad, really, just playing back some of the thoughts that have gone through my head as we talk through all of this, because I, I still can't get my head around why it's the skill that's never invested in. Leadership. Yeah. If you, if you think about the skills that we get invested in from the point that we can read and write, let's say you'll learn how to connect with people and communicate. You taught how to be respectful and follow hierarchy. You, that then bleeds into a technical expertise, whether it's analytical expertise, whether it's marketing expertise, subject matter expertise of something, do all of these things. But you're never taught to be a leader somewhere along that way. And I, I always find myself wondering what might be possible for businesses 
if leadership was something that was invested in as a proper skill. I don't know what you boys think could be happen. I'm going to slightly challenge that and not, not as much as that leadership is not invested in. Um, because I think there is there is there is evidence that leadership is invested in uh, the, the the actual technical market, which I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know I don't know what it contains, but it contains a whole bunch of stuff coaching, like ILM, and and all that kind of stuff. yeah. That that they they've estimated that at being somewhere between eighteen and twenty five billion dollars a year, most of which is spent in America, ironically, yeah. on leadership. However, I think the real point that I agree with you on is that often is spent when it's too late. <laughs> It's yeah. saved for the people who are already running very large organizations. And then you get somebody spending a million and a half mm. a year to fix problems with their leadership style or capacity or range at a point when they've already ingrained two or three decades worth of bad habits and, and find it very difficult to change to their circumstances or achieve the goals that they have now got responsibility for. And if we spread some of that 25 billion into investment of a developable skill from a much earlier stage, both generationally, age, and career-wise, you probably find you wouldn't need to spend 25 billion. You could spend 15 because you'd start to develop at a much lower rate per person, the kind of muscles which mean that you need to spend less mm. when they get to the um, more senior executive ranks because they have developed their own coping mechanism, their own capacity, their own range. They don't need suddenly to get a supercharged fix of a million and a half pounds or whatever it might be per annum to sort out problems that they'd ingrained earlier on. I think that's where there's a real opportunity if if people could see that picture mm. and work out how to do it. But it's such a fragmented market. Mm. That really and boils you, down to finding people earlier in their careers and helping them understand the importance of self-awareness and how to build it and the importance of learning and testing and trialing their own leadership styles early so that by the time they get to that level, they don't need a massive leadership intervention. Huh. They just know what they're doing. I'm, I'm minded to um, share something with you guys and to get your reaction to it as well on this, on this note because I think it's important. Um, and uh, so there's a there's two researchers, um, Dr. Zenger and Dr. Faltman, who uh, are very deep into what makes effective leaders, the different characteristics that make effective leaders, and they do this through surveys and they ask people, they they find the characteristics of people and they ask people that are working under them. Are they a good leader? They look at objective results as well. And they've distilled that down into this set of, uh, I think there's 16 things in five categories. So I wanted to just do a little test with you guys on this. So the five categories are focus on results, personal capabilities, which is all of the technical stuff, character, which is about integrity and honesty, interpersonal skills, and leading change. Now, so question one is of those five categories, which do you think is the highest has the highest correlation with good leadership and, and good leadership outcomes? Which of these is the most important, basically? Oh, well, now you put that little sauce on the end. Now you've really made me think. 
Can we yeah. can we choose the same one, or does if I choose first, can, does he have to pick a different one? No, you can choose the same one. So focus on results, personal capabilities, character, interpersonal skills, and leading change. Uh, and we can so, uh, we'll, we'll figure out a way of sharing this stuff with you guys. But so I, yeah, if you want yeah, to I noticed. Sorry, say that again, Derry, because I overrode your beautiful tone there. I just said, well, I'm just, I'm basically just padding to give you guys time to think. If people are interested <laughs> in, in this stuff, then uh, we'll figure out a way of attaching it to this episode. Uh, or you can go to zengerfolkman.com and have a look, and they publish free reports on all of this. I uh, thought you were going to go all research. beautiful early podcast then and read the whole link out with all the <laughs> forward slashes. Forward slash WP hyphen <laughs> content. No. <laughs> Just Google Zenger Falkman and you'll get what you want. Right. See, I noticed my own bias coming out when we look at this list, right? Because my if my if my bias answers this, character. So you've got character, character has the high, highest correlation. If my bias comes into this. Oh. I will caveat it with that. Okay. So this and then can remind me, Derry. So this is the correlation with the highest performing leaders. Yeah, they've got a, essentially a measurement of what makes a good leader, which is based on objective outcomes and also feedback from people working under them, etc. Got it. I would say interpersonal skills. All right. So round one goes to Jamie. Boom! Interpersonal skills. All right. Is that a list? Two, is that scientifically proven? I want to see the data. I want to see a random. I want to see standard deviations of at least (laughs) seventy (laughs) nine. Right, you've got you've got an opportunity to to uh, get better, level up up the game, get better. (laughs) As I said, there's sixteen things across these five areas, but they're not evenly spread, and actually five of them are under interpersonal skills. Right, so. The second level question is which of these five is the single most important of the the 16 characteristics. So under interpersonal skills, we have communicates powerfully and prolifically, inspires and motivates others to high performance, builds relationships, develops others, and collaboration and teamwork. So which is the single most important factor of the of all of these my bias i think um on this one inspires and motivates others inspires and motivates others now you put graham in a difficult situation here because if he agrees with you then he can't win i like to win (laughs) oh man i'll go collaboration and teamwork Collaboration and teamwork is the wrong answer, I'm afraid. Jamie got in there first with the right answer. <laughs> so I some, think some lead, others follow. And the next episode of the podcast will be on Jamie's Ludditeness in leadership. <laughs> <laughs> he's so data no. analytical that he's following the data proven answer. <laughs> So what is interesting, I think, is in the context of everything we've been talking about, that the analytical answer, and I said at the start of this that you know I'm biased towards the analytical uh, answers, the analytical, the data shows, or at least Zenger and Faultman's analysis shows, that inspires and motivates others to high performance is the single biggest driver of effective leadership. 
And I think that's very interesting because you can take that as that's good leadership in most situations, right? The What we've been digging into and where I think a lot of this leadership conversation doesn't necessarily go deep enough is what does it actually take to inspire and motivate others to high performance? Uh, and, communicates powerfully and perfectly, and I believe collaboration teamwork. <laughs> but I, so, see, I disagree. In some circumstances, motivating people to high performance is that dictatorial dragon leadership style yeah, that yeah. we generally characterize as, oh, that's a bad way of leading people. But actually, mm. you know, it's there's many, many sports coaches that have got absolute peak performance out of people in a moment not necessarily over a career but in a moment by inspiring and motivating them with fear yeah having i will say on that point having spent time both developing coaches in the sporting context and in the business context the two don't align when you look at it like that sport is it's so black and white what the definition of success is you can more heavily lean on that push if you need to. But in business, it's so contextual, the, de- the benchmark for performance, and it isn't a black and white It's ro- roadmap to get there. But I think some of this other stuff comes in. So I think that's true in some circumstances, but yeah. I think also there are there are business organizations that they need it operate more like elite sports teams yeah and they need it and that's what i say there's so many different models it's why i'm really struggling to actually answer the whole thing we're talking about today because my brain goes to a million different places you just highlighting that stat there what was it inspires and motivates high performance or this i think about the second line leaders that i have conversations with so the leader of leaders that's exactly the thing that we're talking about with those kind of groups. How do you get the leaders that work with you to inspire their teams to perform? Mm-hmm. That's the question, the context, the, yeah. the, 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 the topic of conversation. So when you look at it from a very senior level, I think that is definitely on the table. But it's so that- fair. Oh. That's interesting as well. It's interesting, isn't it? When you think about that very senior level of of leadership because i've heard jeff bezos for example describe seen the responsibility of senior leaders is to make a small number of very big decisions and he's talking about that in the context of uh self-care and working hours and not not working 80 hours a week because if you make 80 hours a week and you're only making you have to make a small number of big decisions you're going to make them badly and it's much better to be in the right frame of mind to be able to make those decisions well. But so he articulates leadership in the context of decision-making, which is not really anything to do with inspiring and motivating others to high performance. But then he's a very particular type of leader. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. So much so, I reckon we've run out of time today, haven't we, Jamie? We have. I think we've already... I think most people have finished their dog walk or washing the kids... Or whatever you do whilst you're listening to this, or um, washing the dog podcast. and washing the dog and walking the kids. It could be washing the, the dog you and walking know. the kids. It could be either which way. You could do both at the same time if you're really clever. I mean, that's a new style of leadership, though. Um, one thing I took away from this is that while there's lots of different styles, and actually, great leaders actually learn to adapt and build range. Choosing one isn't necessarily vital. Just becoming really self-aware about what your tendency is is really vital. 
So you can understand where you're at and how you respond to situations and situations then might cause you to need to access different parts of your range. Some of that's going to be cultural heritage oriented, the, the company's institutionalized style that seems to work there until it doesn't. And maybe even the, the nature of the kind of people who work in a particular industry. So there's a whole variety of really interesting aspects to, to, to leadership style. Yet again, we've reached the end of an episode where we've gone, there isn't a right answer. Hmm. Are we are we destined to find that this is the case with every topic we cover? Yes. Because we don't we're, we're consultants. It, we don't want to answer it. <laughs> it always depends. It always depends. I think that, I think that's exactly right, Jamie. That that self awareness, and also I would emphasise the uh, you've got freedom to choose. You can do things differently, hmm. and figuring out how to do things differently and what things you can do differently and whether that works or not is just part of the game, part of the journey. Yeah. But it is, but it's your choice. Yeah, in my language, I, what I see, and a, a great person once told me this little analogy for it: as you make the, as you make interventions into the world as a leader, notice the ripple effects around you. Pay attention to the ripple effects, and that's whether it's outcomes, impact, or actually what it does for you when you make that kind of choice, and see what you bump into. And I think on that note, we'll say thank you to you gents. Been a lovely chat. And we'll see you guys next time. Have a good one. Thanks all. find any of the subjects we cover in this podcast spark inspiration curiosity or concern within you do drop us a line details are in the comments below and we'll be happily there to listen and see how we can offer the best support for you Thank you.